Let's move on to hearing from Dave. Dave, why don't you come up and join us? So, uh, yeah, Dave's joining us from Central Congregations today. He's going to be speaking to us. So I'll just pray for you, Dave, if I may. Lovely. Let's, uh, let's all pray for Dave, shall we? It's not one-off. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Dave. Thank you for all that he's brought and sown into and sacrificed into our church family over these years. We welcome him here. We welcome what you've got to say through your servant. Come, Holy Spirit, would we meet with you and hear from your word? And will we be changed by it? Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Well, you know, Ed and Deb are away taking their son off to uni. And that, that means I can do exactly what I want, can't I? <laughs> and no, I have got a bit of a free hand today. Um, and I, I'm going to be just trying to share um, in about 20 minutes um, a four week sermon series that we've been doing at Woodland Central. Um, Really because for me, September's a bit of a reset. It's a bit of a kind of saying, well, this is what we feel we're about as a church family. This is where we, we want to go. And this is, a kind of, this is a kind of identity that we have. And that's not just for Woodland Central. I think there's something for us commonly around what it means to the, the Woodland Church family. And so I, I, I'm passionate, if you don't know this, about the idea of, of the both and, of holding things in tension. So I guess the, the first thing I want to say, really, is, as I begin, is to say that Creative tension is really important, I think. But for many of us, living with tension is tricky. You know, we want to resolve tension. And, um, you know, we, we want to have a, well, is it this or is it that kind of, we want to, we want to land somewhere because some of us live with tension makes a sense. But honestly, if there isn't tension, things don't work out too well. You know, can you imagine, because if you, if you like football, if every time you played a game of football, you won. And there was never any doubt about the outcome. It'd be like being Man City, wouldn't it? It'd be awful. Um, but it, it would be kind of like, it would spoil something. You know? Now, actually, for some people, tension is really difficult. For my wife, Tina, she cannot watch England play football. The tension is unbearable for her. Anyone else like that? Man City, it's the boy. Sorry about mentioning Man City, Matthew. But, um, I mean, sometimes tension is difficult for us. But without the tension, you know, actually, things don't have life and vibrancy. And so, um, very often as a church, we have to hold things in tension because if we try and fix a problem, then we will lose something really important. And for the early church, they, they had to live with tension all the time. One of the big tensions that the early church lived with was the tension of accommodating non-Jews into what was a Jewish um, religious movement. So the early church, the church that Jesus founded, was composed of Jews. And they had in their um, tradition already from the word go the teaching of the law of Moses and all the, the interpretations around that, um, scripture and beyond scripture as well, that the, that the Jewish nation would have grown up with. And um, suddenly people who are not Jews are coming to faith. And there's a real tension that, that the church has to explore. How do we, what do we do about that? And his should the Gentiles, the new believers, all become Jewish? That would solve a problem, wouldn't it? So in Acts chapter 15, there's a really important chapter. I think it's a seminal chapter in the New Testament because it, it sets a tone there uh, in how they handle that tension, which affected the whole course of church history and maybe the history of, of Western civilization. But they could have gone one way or another, couldn't they? They could have said, right, everybody become Jewish or you don't belong. One or the other. And then we, we've, got it, we've got it sorted then. 
In Acts chapter 15, we, we read about a council that happened in Jerusalem just to try and work out what was going on. And at that council, Peter uh, comes and shares. He shares his experience of going to the house of a Gentile called Cornelius. And we read about that in, in Acts chapter 10 and, and how Cornelius and his family all became full of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and Peter said, oh, we had to baptize them. God's doing the same things with them as he did with us. Paul and Barnabas come and talk about what God has done with them, with the Gentile people, and have a real debate about it. Should Gentiles get circumcised or not? And in the end, they, they have three kind of guidance things to go by. First of all, they listen to stories. What's God doing? And second of all, they reflect upon Scripture. And James, the brother of Jesus, stands up and he says, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. In other words, testimony. Then he goes on to say, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it's written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Scripture. Ah, we get an indication from Scripture that God is going to do something with the Gentiles. It's bigger than just a Jewish thing. And then, after have, they have some debate, um, James really suggests, look, we shouldn't lay too heavy a burden on the Gentiles. We can't even keep the law ourselves. How should we expect them to do? But we need to pay some reference to our practices. Otherwise, it would be very offensive to try and mix these two groups. It's around food and sex, purity laws. And so at the end of the, the, the day, they have this kind of um, letter that goes out. And uh, the apostles write and say, We're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we're writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You're to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You'll do well to avoid these things. And it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. There was a sense, as well as testimony in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is speaking, speaking through our counsel, speaking through the word that James brings. And they resolve um, a problem by holding intention. Well, we're not abandoning completely the traditions of Judaism, but we're not going to make it an absolute that the Gentiles have got to do all the things that we Jewish people do. Now, that tension didn't just go away. If you look at the New Testament, you can see that there are different streams within the church. But they managed to hold things together that would be very easy to fall apart. And for us as church, we, we often have to do that. There will be issues, tensions that we have to hold together. And maybe even in this congregation, some people feel really strongly about one thing. And others, not so. And some of it may be about theology, some of it may be about practice and conduct. You know, there, there may be people here. Anyway, we won't go to all the details of what it may or may not be. But I think it really is important that we are a people who can hold things in tension. That there are sometimes not absolutes. And if we try and solve a problem, we will create schism in the church. And maybe we think an Anglican compromise isn't such a good thing. But in many ways, part of what's driven the, the Anglican church in, over the centuries is how do we hold a unity and how can we hold within the same kind of body different points of view. And that's not a bad thing to go for. So holding things in tension, that's my first thing. Second thing is, is the power of, of the both and. And it's obviously a development of that idea. 
Sometimes we want to settle for those black and whites. But honestly, we live with theological tension around both hands all the time. You know, we, we, we live with the tension, is God three or is God one? You know, and often what we call heresies are challenging about this. You know, is Jesus really fully God or fully man? Actually, the, the question that the church has decided on, both those things are true. God is one and God is three, both and. Jesus was fully God and is fully man. We do have free will and God is sovereign. You know, we're living with those both and tensions all the time. And quite a lot of both and thinking plays out in the life of local church. So, Woodlands Church family, is it one church or many churches? It's both and, I think. In many ways, it's one church. We have a shared governance, we have a shared budget, we have shared values. And yet we're also, we've got local identities all over the city where we meet. So we're, we're, a, very, we're a both and thing. And if we... If we don't get that, we will suffer for it. You know, we'll be the worse off. So here's a few both-and church things that I want to throw by you. The church is both organic and structured. You know, in Peter, Peter writes the church, says, you are living stones. And that's organic and structured. Or, or, or Paul writes, you know, you're God's building, God's field. You know, we, we, it, there's an organic thing there and, and, a, and a structured thing. And so much of what we do in church is organic. It just happens all by itself. I mean, let, take an example like welcome. If you walk into church today and you're a stranger, maybe, I don't know if anyone is a visitor here today, but if you are, it would be great if you felt, I'm just going to, you know, you, you sit next to someone and they welcome you just naturally. But sometimes church is at such a scale that you have to have a dedicated welcome team so that people don't get missed. And very often structure follows the life, like a cart follows a horse. You know, it's better that way around. You know, the, the horse following the cart doesn't work out too well. And, and, but as churches grow, you need to have structure. And certainly that's been our experience at, at Woodlands a Church Family. As the church has grown, we've needed structures to support it. And in the early church, you can see that happening. So the church is growing, and um, people are giving money. And one of the amazing things about the church is there's no needy ones among you. You spot someone who's struggling a little bit, and you, you, you give them out. Maybe you sell something you own and give them, give them of that substance. There came a point, and we read about it in Acts chapter 6, where the church was growing so big that people were getting overlooked. And the Greek-speaking widows felt that they were being discriminated against because most of the church is still very Jewish and maybe the, 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 the um, Aramaic and Hebrew-speaking widows are, are getting a better deal than the Greek-speaking widows. It gets a bit of disunity. And, and the apostles say, look, gosh, we need to support what's going on with the care for the poor among us. We actually need to appoint some people to look after this because we need to not neglect the ministry of the word and prayer. And it's got too busy, too big. We need some structure to help because the organization isn't working anymore. The, the organic isn't working anymore. We're not able to notice things properly and do things fairly. And so the church appoints seven people. They're called deacons. And some of them are famous, like Stephen and Philip. And, um, and it goes on to say, then the church grew and multiplied. The structure helped the organic. And so from time to time in church, we have to do that. Here's another tension. 
the church is both <coughs> human and spiritual. Uh, well, creaturely and, and spiritual. I suppose human beings are spiritual and creaturely, aren't we? As human beings, we've got a body that needs attention. We get hungry, we get uncomfortable. But we've got also a spirit within us that, that is kind of probing for eternity. And churches have to accommodate the human and the spiritual. You know, you could have a church that thought, well, look, we really need to look after everybody really well, so let's have really comfortable chairs. Not here. Um, great, <laughs> great, great coffee. We need to have some really good visuals. We're going to make sure that the, um, you know, the ambient temperature is really good. Great car parking. You know, we, we pay a lot of attention to all that stuff, but there's not very much going on in terms of mystery and spirit and challenge and things that are going to help us live for, for eternity. Or it's possible to have a church that is so into the spiritual, you know, that there's no accommodation made to the flesh. Back in the medieval times, they despised the body a little bit, and you'd kind of have people, you'd wear a hair shirt, or you know, self-flagellation, all those ascetic practices. And that was a mistake, wasn't it? But what we need to do is care for the body and the soul. So churches need to think about human factors. Honestly, we need to, if we're going to, you know, be appropriate and vibrant and grow, we actually do need to think about the environment that people are gathering in. But we also want to say, this is an environment where we meet with the Holy Spirit. And unless we're really seeking his presence, then what are we doing? Just to kind of, you know, might as well go to, I don't know, a social club somewhere and that'll be fine. Because we're both and. And uh, what time shall I stop, by the way? Very soon, probably. <laughs> but there's lots of, if, if, once you see the both and, it's everywhere, isn't it? Jesus says to the church, you're salt and light. Now, there's a real tension between, the, the, between those two images because Jesus talks about light like a city on a hill that can't be hidden. You're very visible. And who you are and what you do needs to be seen. You need to be, let your, let your good deeds shine so that people see, see them. Let your light shine before men. They'll see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, Jesus says in Matthew 5. Because we're visible. And church needs to be visible. I love the fact that Woodland Central is very visible. It's a big old building. People walk past it. It's got a big glass foyer. We've got a massive presence on the internet. Last year, we had over 500 people came and gave us their contact details because we were that visible. And we need church to be visible so that people could come and find it. And we have, as a church family, a visibility. That's a wonderful thing to celebrate. But church is also meant to be invisible, like salt, scattered, distinctive, changing the flavour, but not that visible. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give. It's both hands, isn't it? Corporately, we, we, we want to do public good deeds because that glorifies God. But individually, we do things secretly because we're not pointing to us. We just want to be a blessing and we want to partner with the Father. And it means that neighbourhood and community are as important as gathered. Small churches is as important as big church. Big church does some things really well. It does, you know, attractional stuff. It does inspiration well. But it's bad at noticing and participation. And so I rejoice the fact that the Woodland Church family is a large church and small church. And even within our smaller congregations, we organize small groups because we recognize participation doesn't happen on a Sunday. So we need the small as well as the big. We're both and church. There's so much more I can say. Actually, you can, you can reference my sermons online if you want to, if this whets your appetite. But let me just come into line with, a, with, a, with two very 
quick points, really. The church as uh, some of the theology that we, we live with, that's both and. Or, or some of our spirituality. The church is both the messenger and the message. We have a, a message to share with people, so we're a messenger. You know, we want to tell people good news, that God is good, that he loves people, that his power can transform broken lives and broken situations. But we ourselves are part of the message. So when you look at us, you ought to see what it looks like. And that's what the early church was like. It was kind of, you look at that gathering and think, ah, that's what God's kingdom looks like. We're not just talking about it, we're living it. We are the message and we are the messenger. And when people come to faith, is it a process or is it a precipitate moment? Is there just this kind of slow burn thing that goes on where we have to absorb the, 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 the truth about Jesus? Some people say it takes 17 times to hear about Jesus before you're ready to make a commitment. And yet, we also need a moment of decision. It's a bit like, um, you know, you, you might have been in a romance where you were getting to know someone, but there came a point where you said, I want to give you the rest of myself to you for the rest of my life. And actually, that's one reason why Alpha is such an amazing tool for us, because it is both and. It is both a process. You get to come along to a, a, a course, you get to hear talks, you get to build relationships. But there'll come a moment, like the Holy Spirit Day, where you're asked, do you want prayer? There'll come a moment, you know, who is Jesus? Are you willing to, 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 to um, acknowledge that, all that, you, that you actually believe what you've heard and that you want to stake your life on it? And I suppose it's not one or the other. If we just do evangelism that is, right, hear the gospel once, hit and run, you know, we'd be missing out. But also, if we don't offer opportunities within a process of sharing, that's also a problem. I think every time we share communion, there's an opportunity, a moment of commitment or recommitment to Jesus. We'll be doing that later on today. And maybe that's worth reflecting on, actually. Holy communion is a both-and meal, isn't it? It's both a celebration of, a, of all that Jesus came to do, and when we take communion, we recognize the body of Christ. We think about Jesus who said, this is my body given for you. Jesus who died on the cross and the bread and the wine symbolizing for us his body and blood. But we also recognize that we are the body of Christ. And as well as the vertical dimension of communion where we recalibrate ourselves as followers of Jesus and get right with God if we've fallen away from that discipleship, we also get right with one another because we are the body of Christ. And this is all about our unity as well. And when Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, he's, his favorite language for the church is, you're the body of Christ. And so when he tells us to recognize the body of Christ, what's he telling us to do? Is he telling us to think about the cross? Or is he telling us to think about one another? I think he's telling us to think about both. And, and we could get, go on about that. But um, as I finish, my last point is, on both ending, live with tension. The kingdom has come. And it's not yet come. We're living with the end in mind. Romans chapter 8 says, um, Paul's writing there and he says, you know, even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for our redemption, the adoption of our bodies. He's, he's kind of looking forward to a day when the kingdom of God that's been consummated, that's, that's been inaugurated, will be fully realized. And... Um, I guess we're familiar with the idea that God is with us, but God is still to be with us. That Jesus is with us by spirit, but one day Jesus will come again. 
that the kingdom is here, yet the kingdom is yet to come. And so we pray, we still pray, don't we? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We're asking as we pray that prayer for the will of God to be fully done on earth as it is in heaven. And that concept is so important for us because, because the kingdom is here, because a bridgehead of heaven has broken into the enemy-occupied territory of planet Earth. Because Satan is no longer the, the, uh, you know, the, the controller of our planet, as Jesus calls the prince of this world. The, the Holy Spirit's here. The Holy Spirit is, is at work. Jesus has broken the spiritual powers well on his death on the cross. And miracles can happen. Anything can happen. Jesus is alive. That's the reality. And yet we also live with the possibility of a future kingdom because it's not yet happened in all its fullness. And so we have to live with, with something like with suffering and sickness. We live with the reality that we pray for people and people have supernatural healing. And we pray for people and people die. And that is absolutely my experience. I have my own kind of record of the power of the Spirit being at work of people getting healed, and also the experience of prayer, earnest prayer for people and people dying. It was the true of the experience of the early church. Think of two people in prison at the same time, James, Peter. They'd, they'd been super actually let out of prison once already in Acts 4. Here they are later on in the book of Acts, and James is beheaded. But Peter, an angel, releases him from prison supernaturally. The church is praying. What's going on? It's both and. And ultimately, there's a mystery around that, around why things happen in the way that we do. But what we know, know is that our job is to seek the kingdom. There's a time, this is my last point, in, in John chapter 9, Jesus uh, and his disciples walk past a, a man who's been born blind. And the disciples are asking the question, who sinned? This man or his parents who was born blind, their theology said there must be a black and white reason why this happened. And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened. I'm going to put a full stop there. You can do that in the Greek. You don't have to. It's translated in different ways or, or punctuated in different ways. But this happened. Then he says, so that the will of God may be fulfilled. While it's day, we must do the works of him who sent us. And basically Jesus is saying, look, we don't have an absolute as to why it happened. But what we can do is get on and do the things of the kingdom while we can. And he heals the man. And um, <laughs> at the end of the, the, the chapter, when the, the blind man is being torn off a strip by the, the, the religious authorities, because it all happened on a Sabbath, and it's, you know. So who is he? What happened? He says, I don't know, but one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. He's living with mystery, but being a witness and celebrating that God has intervened in his life. And within the both-hand life and the tension that we live in, we're celebrating that God is breaking into our lives. And my prayer for us today is that God will break into our lives. We're going to be sharing communion. This will be an opportunity for us as we come to these stations to receive the grape juice and possibly the, um, I'm not sure it's unleavened bread, but it might be gluten-free, I don't know, is it? <laughs> Some gluten-free here, regular bread as well. This is a chance for us to come to God and say, in our place of need, Holy Spirit, will you meet me today and do what only you can do? So let's take a moment just to, as I've kind of fired away at you, 19 to the dozen, let's take a breathing, breathing point.
Holy Spirit, we, we know that in our lives there are plenty of tensions. Tensions that we live with as people. Tensions that we try and manage as a church. Complexities that are hard for us. Tensions around our theology and our understanding of you. Living in a, in, in a broken world where your spirit is still at work. But today, Lord God, we want to open our hearts and minds to receive you. We recognize that in our midst today, in this congregation, there are people carrying pain, carrying burdens. We want to give those to you now, Lord God. We recognize in this congregation, some of us are, are feeling that we've let you down. We've not kept our promises. We've not done things we should have done, or we've done things we shouldn't. And we recognize, God, that you are merciful. And we thank you, Lord God, for this meal. So I just want to remember with you now as we make our confession to God that he's good and we need his mercy. Be merciful to us, Lord God. Cleanse us from our sin and fill us with your spirit. And we remember that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples as he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And we do remember that Jesus died. And we celebrate that he's risen, and by his spirit, he's with us now. Anything can happen. But we also look forward to his coming again, and we proclaim his death until he comes. And this is the gospel that we proclaim. Christ has died. Christ is risen Christ will come again. Will you say that with me? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And you're invited now to come to the station as we go back into worship, to share bread and wine, to get right with God. If you need to get right with a, a brother or sister, that's a good thing to do. And actually, if, if today you want to recommit yourself to God, maybe to talk to someone today and say, look, as I take this bread and wine, it's a sign of my wanting to be in a covenant relationship with King Jesus, make him Lord of my life. It's a great thing to do.